what they watch happen before their eyes is they watch people making horrible decisions get promoted. And they are being promoted based on a result that was achieved, not on the sort of deliberate intention that went into making the decisions. And I sit there and go, I've made horrible decisions in my life that have ended in really good results by sheer luck. And if that is what I'm being promoted on, it's going to destroy the culture of the organization. We have to stop focusing so much solely on a result and start thinking through what it looks like to make the decision in the first place. And when you reward that, I always believe you're going to have the company's best interests at heart. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest this week is Brant Menzwar. Brant is a top 10 motivational speaker, a critically acclaimed author, award-winning musician, podcast host, and the CEO and founder of Rockstar Impact, a boutique agency that teaches people and organizations how to cultivate values-based leadership. Brandt is also the author of a new book called Black Sheep, Unleash the Extraordinary, Awe-Inspiring, Undiscovered You. And I'm so excited that he came by today to talk about self-leadership, individual accountability, values, and really finding your core values and purpose in your life. So if you like your motivational speakers to be former rock stars, which I kind of do, sit tight and enjoy this conversation with Brandt Menswar. Hey, Brant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Listen, for those who don't know who you are, which is ridiculous because you're a rock star in my world, I wonder if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the audience, to the listeners, and telling us a little bit about your origin story. Sure. So I was born and raised up in Manchester, New Hampshire. And early on in my career, I had planned on playing professional baseball. And that's what brought me to Florida to play for Florida Southern College. And I got hurt, had to figure out something else to do with my life. And lo and behold, you know, a decade or so later, it turned out to be music. And I spent 20 years or so in the music business with two different bands and two different record deals and really just being blessed to tour the world and, you know, write your own original music and have enough fans to keep you going for a while. And then about eight years ago, I started to transition off the road full time and into the sort of world of conference speaker, keynote speaker. And that has sort of been my life over the last six, eight years now. Pretty good life. You know, I always wonder what happens to aging, tired rock stars. And I think, well, <laughs> do they end up in a group home? Do they end up on Skid Row? Yes. Or do they end up at HR conferences? Who knows? <laughs> it depends on how successful you were, I guess, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder, before we talk about present day, I wonder back then, looking at the life that you had, would you have ever predicted where you are now as a writer, as a speaker, as an author? of an upcoming book. Did you see that when you were on the road? No, not at all, to be honest with you. And I, I get reconfirmed every time I see somebody from high school who goes, you do what? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, for me, writing songs is the exact opposite of writing books, in my opinion. And so when you're writing a song, if you can say something in five words rather than 10, then you say it in five and you leave a little mystique. And when you're writing a book, if you can say it in 10, use 12 and be really descriptive. 
Well, that is really interesting. That's right. That's right. And yet I see some similarities because when you're writing a book, the best books are written in a conversational tone and evoke a feeling. It's almost as if the author is in your ear. And in that way, I love a book where I'm reading it, but I feel like someone is having a conversation with me and speaking to me. I don't know. What do you think about that? I agree. That's honestly how I tried to write this book. And you know, this is my first, what I call big boy book, which was with a publisher and actually you can go into a store and buy it, not in my garage and buy it. And so, you right, know, in a cardboard box. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, can I sell you this out of the trunk of my car? It is a, you know, even with the editing and stuff, I had just the most amazing editor on this book through page two publishing up in Vancouver. And Kendra was my editor and she's just the opposite of me. She's quiet and confidence and just that quiet confidence and really able to sort of settle down my rock star angst. It was such an interesting thing to try to make sure that it kept my voice right and my tone. And so that's something that we worked really hard on when we wrote this book. Well, I believe it. Well, tell us a little bit about the book. Let's not be mysterious here. What is it (laughs) and what's it all about? What are the big ideas? So the book is called Black Sheep. And Lori, it's based basically on the idea that I was 47 years old when somebody finally told me why farmers don't value black sheep like the rest of the flock. And the truth was so shocking to me that I couldn't believe I had lived 47 years without knowing the answer. But the truth was that the reason that farmers don't value black sheep the same as the rest of the flock is because a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. And so every black sheep is in effect 100% authentically original. And I heard that and I'm going, gosh, we have demonized black sheep for hundreds of years and sort of positioned them as an outcast and, you know, sort of the excommunicated. And I'm sitting here going, wait a minute, if the fact that what makes them so valuable in their own right is that they are 100% authentically original. Like that is literally my life's goal. (laughs) And so the idea came into my head that we all possess these black sheep values, these deeply held personal core values that no matter how much someone wants to try to twist or turn or change them, they simply cannot be changed just like a black sheep's wool. And that's really the premise of the book. Mm. There are so many places to begin. I think when I hear the phrase black sheep and the way you've described it, it occurs to me that all of us are born black sheep and then something happens. Like what happens to us that gets rid of the sense of purpose and replaces it with, I don't know, corporatized goals and things that just aren't close to our heart. What do you think happens? Oh, that's such a, honestly, like I, it's such a great thought. I don't disagree at all. Even, you know, I spent six years of my life pastoring a church. And during that time, I would always say that I believe no matter what your faith is or what God you believe in, I believe that we are closest to God the day we're born and we continue to drift away based on the world telling us this, that, or the other thing. And I feel like it's the same way, right? That sort of very fabric of who you are gets eroded over time and it gets sort of twisted and turned into people telling you what you should be or who you should be. And that to me is part of the journey when I get into coaching people to discover their black sheep values. What we find is that over the course of their lives, they've been caring for other people's sheep for so long that it's hard to distinguish which ones are theirs and which ones aren't. Yeah, that's so right on the money. That speaks to me. I feel as if it often takes a crisis to figure out who we are and reconnect with our values. So when you wrote this book. I mean, you're clearly writing it for someone like me who's like, who am I? What am I all about? Where do I go? Where do you start with this journey, Brent? 
So for me, it was, this book was born from a crisis. So you, you hit that right on the head. In 2012, my oldest son, Theo, was diagnosed with cancer, a rare blood cancer that required a bone marrow transplant for him to survive. And during that process, we ended up living in the hospital for 263 straight days. And as we are fighting and he is battling, we came to this moment where the transplant was successful, but he developed something called graft-versus-host disease, which is where sort of the marrow that was inserted into his body didn't recognize the environment of what it had been placed. And so it began to attack the body. And so the way that they treat that is they super suppress the immune system. They pretty much destroy it so that the body can't fight back. And when they did that, he ended up contracting this deadly fungus while he was in the hospital. So he had graft-versus-host disease that you treat by, you know, super suppressing the immune system or it will threaten his life. And then he contracts this fungus that the treatment was you super boost the immune system or it will threaten his life. So we found ourselves in that scenario with a zero-sum game. And one afternoon we get called into the parents' lounge and, you know, my wife and I sit down and there's this row of doctors there and they look at us and say, we are so sorry but there's nothing else we can do. No matter which one we treat, the other's going to take his life. And we don't think that he's going to make it through the night. So you should probably go back and say your goodbyes and call whoever you need to call. And so talk about a crisis. Yeah, um, right. We find ourselves in this moment where, I mean, what do you do? I stood up, <laughs> shocked, numb. My wife is bawling. We walk back to his room. We grab his younger brother, who's three years younger than him. We go to the edge of the bed and we sit down and we try to find these words to say goodbye. As this is happening, I'm just, I'm flailing. I'm literally like in this emotional tornado and I'm trying to just say whatever I need to say. I can't even get the words to come out. And, you know, you hear your child say, I'm going to miss you, daddy. And it just, it destroys you. And so I get through this moment. Now I have to call everybody. And so, you know, one of the people I call is my younger brother who lives 1500 miles away. And I'm like, listen, you're not going to have time to make it. So if you're going to say your goodbyes, you're going to have to do it over the phone. I'm sorry. And so, you know, he does and is incredibly distraught, as you could imagine, and hangs up the phone and is just feeling helpless. And so he ends up sitting on his couch that evening and recording himself, holding up these poster boards, sort of explaining what's happening in this Hail Mary attempt to find a solution for something that we were told was impossible. So it says, my nephew's dying. We've got less than 24 hours. He's got mucormycosis. He's got graft-versus-host disease, the yada, yada, all the way through. He never says a word during the entire video. He plays the song, Fix You, from start to finish. And when the song ends, the video ends. And he uh, uploads that video to YouTube that night. I sat on the edge of the bed all night long. Theo makes it through the night. And the next morning, my phone is ringing off the hook and I'm just, I'm trying to ignore it. I'm not good at being present. And I'm trying to be present for every last second that I can be. And as that's sort of happening, after a few hours, my phone is literally hot from vibrating all morning long. And so I finally grab my phone and I look at the screen and I see all these names and numbers from people that I don't know. And so I did not know that my brother had made this video and uploaded it to YouTube. By the time I grabbed my phone the next morning, it had already been seen over 500,000 times. And all of these names and numbers are from people who saw this video. And some of them were doctors. And so I had a voicemail from a doctor at MD Anderson in Houston who said, you don't know me but 
but I saw this video and was able to get your number. And there's this alternate treatment that I don't know that you guys are aware of. It's brand new and it might be able to help. Would you mind if I talk to your doctor? And so we said, absolutely. And then I got a call from Dr. Tim Johnson from Good Morning America. And he said, you tell your doctor anyone he wants to speak to, get me a list and I'll try to make it happen in the next 24 hours. And so that's exactly what we did. We talked to our bone marrow doctor who was brilliant and just said, you know, who do you want to speak to? If you had a wish list, who would that be? And it was a doctor at Dana-Farber in, in Boston. And there was a research scientist at Cornell University. And you know, these four doctors put their heads together and they came up with this crazy plan to try to save Theo's life. Um, and it worked. Amazing. And Theo just turned 23 years old day before yesterday. Well, you include that story in the book and it's a super compelling story for so many reasons. But tell us, why did you include it in the book? I included it in the book because in the worst moment of my life, that moment where I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, I made a choice to say my goodbyes based on a doctor telling me to go do it, not based off of what mattered most to me in my life. Because even though we had a miracle ending to that story, this fairy tale that we've been able to live, which we are fully aware that not everybody gets, for the next five or so years after he survived, I went to bed every night with one thought, which was, I wonder if he thinks I gave up on him. And I beat myself up for years and years and years. And to be honest with you, it's a valid question. And so I sat there and went, I never want to be in that position again, because if I would have discovered what mattered most to me, if I would have found out what these black sheep values are for myself, then when we had that conversation on the edge of the bed, it would have looked completely different. It would have been filled with all the things that matter most to me, not flailing feelings and emotions that I was trying to grab in the moment. And so this book was written so that people can discover these things. So when the biggest storm of their life rolls in one day, they're prepared. They're prepared to make better decisions. So Brent, when I hear this story, I feel sorry for you and your family that you were caught up in a medical system that isn't more organized and doesn't have universalized knowledge. And your brother had to do this crazy act of going on YouTube, which was beautiful and just fortuitous, but heartbreaking because what about the people who don't go on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, you never want to have your child's life dependent on social media, right? So I mean, that is <laughs> right. not what we want. But what I'll tell you is this, and this was a big learn. So in the book, it talks about what is a good decision? How do you know when you've made a good decision? Because that is what I battled with for years afterwards. And so as I sort of dug into the research as to what constitutes a good decision. Every person that I have asked that question to over the last two years of being on stage at these different conferences. So I've probably asked this question to 50,000 people and I always get the same answer. And the same answer is centered around some sort of outcome or result. And that's how they know they've made a good decision. And what the science tells us is that that's not true. That's what we call outcome bias. And you can't use an outcome or result to justify whether a decision was good or bad. And so what I suggest in the book is that a good decision is born from these black sheep values. The second thing is it considers all the facts that you can get your hands on. And this was the big learn in that moment in what you just described of you would think there was a better system, medically speaking, to be able to access knowledge. Sometimes the truth in the room is only the truth in the room. 
And you got to go beyond the room to see if that's actually accurate or not. I always equate it to like one of these real estate apps, you know, like Zillow or something like that. And you sit there and you go, okay, I want a four bedroom, three bath. I want a half acre. I want this. I want this school district. I want a pool. And you start narrowing your search and you finally get everything that you want and you hit search and there's, you know, two results and they're both way out of your price range. And you're like, oh, my dream is over. It's ruined. I can never have what I want. And in reality, if you just would have expanded the search parameters by 10%, all of a sudden there's 20 more options for you to look at. And in that same way, you know, I really, really feel like we have to try to search beyond just the truth in the room. And then finally, you have to honor what you're feeling in the moment. And if you can do those three things, if you can make a decision born out of these black sheep values, you gather all the information that you can and you honor what you're feeling in the moment, then you've made a good decision regardless of the outcome. We don't control outcomes unless your name is Glinda or Gandalf. You don't have that kind of power. And so let that go and focus on honoring these things that matter most to you as opposed to trying to justify whether or not a decision was good or bad based on the outcome you received. Hmm. Really interesting take. As you were talking, it made me think that we have to practice some of this when the stakes are low in order to nail it when the stakes are high. Because if we're only trying to figure out our black sheep values in the moment of crisis, we're doomed, right? That's exactly right. And I mean, from an HR perspective, this is the biggest point of contention that I think a lot of people who are within a particular company culture are sitting there and what they watch happen before their eyes is they watch people making horrible decisions get promoted and they are being promoted based on a result that was achieved, not on the sort of deliberate intention that went into making the decisions. And I sit there and go, I've made horrible decisions in my life that have ended in really good results by sheer luck. And if that is what I'm being promoted on, it's going to destroy the culture of the organization. We have to stop focusing so much solely on a result and start thinking through what it looks like to make the decision in the first place. And when you reward that, I always believe you're going to have the company's best interests at heart. That is really smart thinking. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you say, but I also don't want to lead people down a path of thinking that this is easy. Like this is hard work. And I wonder how do we stop and figure out those core values in the quiet moments so that when things are tough and challenging, we're prepared. How do we get in touch with those core values? That's, I mean, that's the question of the moment, right? And so you never want it to be in the middle of a crisis when you're trying to figure this stuff out. So as much as a global pandemic has slowed the world down, maybe this is the best time for you to start figuring out what matters most, whether you are at work or you are trying to figure out, you know, politically who you're going to vote for or whatever that looks like. These are things that you need to know to make decisions that are in alignment with your values. And so the best way for me, I tried to make this as easy as possible, right? So you can read the book, you can buy the book, of course, that's fantastic. I would love that. But I created a free assessment to try to give people the first step. What's that shallow dive into the values pool that can at least start the conversation? And so at the website for the book, which is findyourblacksheep.com, there is an assessment. You simply click on find your flock. And what it does is it walks you through, there's 125 commonly held personal core values. 
in the first part of the assessment. And what it asks you to do at first is to say, okay, I want you to go through these words and I want you to give me your knee-jerk reaction. If you read a word and it resonates with you, go ahead and select that word. And so you start going through and you're like, achievement, oh, I like that, okay. Accountability, oh, okay, I like that too. Empathy, all right. So you start selecting the words that resonate with you. And what I know after doing this for two years with thousands of people is that the average person selects at least 30 words out of those 125. And so my first reaction is always, tell me, what does crippling anxiety and depression feel like? Because you've set yourself up for failure. Oh, man, 30 core values. I could maybe name five that I'm (laughs) striving for and fail at regularly. Interesting. Yeah. So these 30 things that you're telling yourself are really, really important to you in your life are just too many. You could be successful in 29 out of 30, which would put you in the Hall of Fame at any sport that you want to play, right? But we look at that one that that we failed on and that's sort of what we focus on. And we allow feelings of shame and guilt and depression and anxiety to creep in because you weren't perfect. And so what this does is it takes that subset. So, okay, let's take these 30 words. And let's group them by likeness or theme. So we have words like sympathy and empathy get grouped together. And words like achievement and success would get grouped together. And so you have sort of these five buckets of words that you now have separated. And you can choose what's the one word that you can't live without in each one of these buckets. And that gives you your sort of introductory flock of five is what I call them. And that's where we start. Well, I was just amazed by that process because it sounds so much like what I've done in my life when I go to therapy and I'm like, where am I? Where do I start? You know, and I love this approach that's really trying to get down to our core values because that's really what it's all about. So once you identify your core values in the world, what are the marching orders then, Brent? Well, you have to prove that you're a sheep and that you're not caring for somebody else's. And so the other thing that we know from doing this for a couple of years now, I can tell you without fail that I have never worked with a single person over the course of two years that the five they started with were the five they ended with. Oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Well, because when you first sort of take a look at these things that matter most to you, they're going to be out of these five things that we're asking people to identify. We know that two or three of them are 100% real. They can give me 20 examples over the course of their lives as to why they are real and where they happened. And so there's no question that two or three of them are real. But there's also two or three of them that are what I like to call aspirational sheep. (laughs) They are either who they want to be or who somebody has told them they should be, but they are not who they are. And so when they get into the next phase, which is tracking, so you've got to count your sheep, you've got to track these things. Can you find evidence? Can you find proof that they exist organically in your life? And so the next step is every night before you go to bed, you have this tracking workbook and you sort of dig back through your day in your head and you search for evidence of these things that you say matter most to you. And every time you find one, you sort of make a hash mark and you write a little bit of where did it happen? Who was involved with it? And you start to track these things. And at the end of a week, you have a really good idea of the two or three that showed up multiple times every day in different circumstances and different scenarios with different people. And then you have two or three that are almost non-existent. And so we have to look at why they're non-existent. 
And what we find in that sort of case for most of the time is that one of two things is happening. They've drilled down too far, too specific to a value that is too narrow, right idea, but they went a step beyond where they should have. And they need to do what I call leveling up. They have to level up to a larger word that includes the word that they selected. So for instance, I'll have people tell me community, faith, relationships are three of their black sheep values. And I look at that and I go, none of those are black sheep values. The black sheep value is connection. And you just gave me three ways that you actually connect, right? You connect through your faith, you connect through your friends, you connect through your work, your community, your family, your whatever it might be. And so that's leveling up, right? You got to find the top of the hierarchy there so that you can make sure you find evidence that it is something that matters. If you only said community and you were locked in your house for six months during a pandemic, does that mean that your sheep don't get fed? (laughs) Right? So there has to be another way that you have to get to that top word so that you can find additional evidence that these are actually real and yours and that you're not caring for other people's sheep. That's so interesting. Well, as we start to wrap up the conversation, Brant, I know that you want to send people out of here thinking about something that's really big, like a big idea about the book, about your just ethos, about everything you bring to the table. So what is it that you want people to take with them from this conversation? There's so many things. (laughs) But what I want to say is this. If they hear one thing from me and they get one thing out of this book, it's that I want people to realize that they're already enough. There are so many people who are searching, who think that they need to be more than they are. And the reason they feel that way is because they're looking for proof for sheep that don't exist. And when they don't find it, they feel bad about themselves. But the reason they feel bad is because they're not actually their core values. They're somebody else's that they've been convinced they should care for. So my hope is this, do the work to figure out what matters most to you. Prove that these are indeed your black sheep values so that you can realize and understand that you're already enough. You are already enough to do whatever it is that you want to do with your life and stop thinking that you have to become something that you're not. Well, Brent, I'm so grateful that you shared some of your wisdom on the podcast today. If people want to learn more, find the book, learn more about your journey, where would you have them go? Findyourblacksheep.com. Well, that is certainly easy enough. Thank you so much for being a guest on Punk Rock HR. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brant Menswar. Now, listen, he had a ton of tips and resources that he mentioned, and we're going to have that all on our website at laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-129. Now, that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.